0: John Wesley, the leader of the Methodist revival in 18th century England, was once asked how he knew if his preaching was successful. And he responded, I know my preaching is successful if some are angered and some are saved. And when it came to preaching and its effect, John Wesley knew something about what he was talking about. During his itinerant ministry, he traveled more than 250,000 miles on horseback, he preached more than 40,000 sermons to crowds as large as 20,000 people. And he gauged his success as whether some were angered and some were saved. On April 2nd, 1739, John Wesley abandoned his reticence to preach outside of the walls of the church, And he took to open-air evangelism. It brought him face-to-face with the common people, and it ignited a revival, the likes of which England had never seen, nor have they seen since. And regarding that great day that the thrust of his ministry took that marked turn, Wesley wrote in his diary, At four in the afternoon, I submitted to be more vile and proclaimed in the highways the glad tidings of salvation speaking from a little reticence in the ground adjoining the city to 3,000 people. The scripture on which I spoke was this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach the deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable Year of the Lord. And more than likely, Wesley had chosen this text because it was the same scripture with which Jesus introduced his ministry to the people of his hometown of Nazareth. And the following years of Wesley's ministry also revealed something of the same kind of rejection, the same kind of anger, and the same kind of denunciation that descended upon our Lord when he first brought God's message to his people. So if you have your Bible handy, please turn to the fourth chapter of Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 4, beginning at at verse 14. Jesus has just come from the wilderness where he's been tempted by the devil for 40 days, and we begin at the 14th verse of Luke chapter 4. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues, and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind. To set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, "Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." And all who were, and all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying. Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, No prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, But there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a widow, or to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through his midst, their midst, he went his way. Shall we pray? Father, as we come to the scripture passage this morning, where we see so clearly how Some people respond to the gospel and the good news and respond to Jesus. Father, I pray that you would open up our hearts as we respond through your Holy Spirit to our Savior this morning, Lord. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verses 14 and 15 encompass a full year of ministry. Jesus, after he came out of the wilderness, he ministered in the towns and the hillsides of Galilee for a year before he went to his hometown in Nazareth. Jesus came out of the wilderness, full of the Holy Spirit. He began his public ministry, and Luke leaves out many of the details, but the other Gospels record, for example, that during this first year of Jesus' ministry, he he had turned the water into wine at Canaan, he met with the Samaritan woman at the well, and he preached in Samaria, where many of the Samaritans believed in him. He met with Nicodemus by night and then he began his ministry in Galilee and Luke tells us in verse 14 of this fourth chapter of Luke and Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the spirit and during this first year news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district and he began teaching in their synagogues and he was praised by all. Jesus traveled about in the cities of Galilee, taught in their synagogues, and he went about preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we say in these verses that the news about him spread and he was being praised by all. That word translated praise literally means to be glorified. He was glorified or uplifted by all. He was gaining in popularity because of his teaching. People were talking about him at the supper, at supper table, in their homes. They were talking about him in the marketplaces, in the fields, and and on their fishing boats. And they were all talking about what Jesus was teaching and doing. People wanted to be with him. They wanted to hear him. He was gaining quite a following. He was growing in popularity. And we read there in verse 15 that he taught in their synagogues every week. Jesus could be found in a local synagogue teaching the word of God to those who had gathered to hear it. And during that first year, Jesus had performed some miracles. He miraculously fed a lot of people. He healed some others. He preached some parables in the countryside. And it was all these things put together that gained him his popularity. And it will be these things as well that will make enemies for him. But it is preaching that makes the enemies the quickest. Everybody loves a good miracle. Everybody likes to go and see somebody get healed or cured or whatever. And uh, you can bring in crowds for a free meal. You know, he fed 5,000 people and he fed 4,000 people. And interesting stories and parables never really offend anybody. But when you open up the Word of God and you teach it, And when you declare the uncompromising, simple and clear message of God from His Word, some people begin to get upset. And that is what happened with Jesus. Now, from outside of Nazareth, the news about Jesus was spreading. And so far, it was favorable. He was praised by all. And probably at this point, the people of Nazareth were proud of their hometown boy, who was becoming very famous. A few may have grumbled, well, why doesn't he come back to Nazareth and show his stuff here? Does he think he's too good for us now to come home? And maybe others said, well, maybe he's just too busy, but he will come and we'll see if the rumors about him are true. And sure enough, Jesus eventually came to his hometown and probably everybody turned out the synagogue on that Sabbath. They probably packed it out when they heard that Jesus was in town. So on this particular Sabbath, Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth to preach the word, and he preaches a message from the book of Isaiah. And he tells them that this prophecy from Isaiah is fulfilled in him. Verse 16 of this fourth chapter. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, as was his custom. He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. It was his custom every Sabbath to go to the synagogue and teach the Word of God. The synagogues were like a Jewish church. They only needed ten men, or ten families as it were, to faithfully attend and support a synagogue. So ne- nearly every town had at least one synagogue. Some of the larger cities had quite a few synagogues. For example, at the time of Christ, Jerusalem had over 400 synagogues. And the main purpose of the synagogue was for the education of the people and the teaching the truths of God's word. And when they gathered, they basically did two things. They prayed and they taught the Bible. They gathered at the synagogue at least three times a week. They'd gather on the Sabbath, which is Saturday on our calendar. And then after work, they would gather on Monday and Thursday. And the goal of these three meetings was to teach the entire Word of God. And on the Sabbath, they taught the Bible in such a way that the Pentateuch, or the Torah, that's the first five books of the Bible, was taught straight through every three and a half years. Every three and a half years, they taught through the first five books of the Bible. And at the close of the service comes to, uh, comes what is referred to as the Haftarah. The Haftarah, that is a portion of the prophets that was read right before they dismissed the meeting. And any young man from the community could do that reading and make a comment on the passage if he wished. So the attendant has Jesus the scroll. He unrolls it and begins to read in verse 17. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Everyone just stared at Jesus when he sat down. And while their eyes were fixed on him, verse 21, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Notice that Luke says, he began to say, so he began to talk about what this scripture passage meant in relation to him. He began to explain or to teach how he was the fulfillment of this scripture. He explained the text in Isaiah and showed it, how it what the application was. And at first his hearers gave him a warm and welcome reception. Verse 22, And all were speaking well of him, and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? It was going really well at first. They received Jesus' words as gracious, literally as words of grace. And they spoke well of him. They wondered at the words. In other words, they were amazed. And the reason they marveled at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. He taught as one who had authority, not as the scribes and the teachers of the law typically taught. You see, the scribes and teachers of the law, when they got up to teach the Bible, they often said a bunch of nothing, a bunch of nothing. Oh, sure, they would read the passage of Scripture, just like Jesus did, but instead of explaining it, they would start quoting other teachers. They would say things like, well, Rabbi Hilliel says such and such about this this passage, but Rabbi Shimei says this, and, and over in the Targum we read this. And basically what they had done, all they had done was tell people what the various big-name teachers and commentaries had said about the passage. And oftentimes these teachers and writers contradicted one another. And nobody ever really learned what the passage really meant. They just got a bunch of mad ma- man, yeah, man-made opinions on the passage, which often conflicted with one another. But Jesus didn't really care what Rabbi Hilliel or Rabbi Shimier said about a certain passage. He just explained the Word of God simply and directly. Here's what the passage, here's the passage, here's what the passage means, And here is how it applies to you. And people were astonished at this teaching because they understood it. They marveled at it because it was so simple. It was authoritative because it was the unadulterated Word of God, and they loved it, and they wanted more. At least some of them did initially. But as Jesus continued, they began to question his authority, began to question his credentials for doing this. Is this not Joseph's son? How can this be coming from the guy who grew up with my kids, or I grew up with, the son of ordinary carpenter? Who made him such an expert? We heard none of this over a year ago when he was here among us every day of his life. And as Jesus taught them, he did not beat around the bush with these people. After reading Isaiah's prophecy, Jesus plainly taught that, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What a staggering claim. Jesus saying that Isaiah's words written 700 years before apply to him and are about him. And look what these words proclaim. Jesus claims to be speaking under and acting under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Applying to himself, he read in verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me. The word anointed in the Greek is the word for Christ. In the Hebrew, it's the word for Messiah. Jesus is claiming to be the Lord's Christ, the promised Messiah. Then he claims to be the sent one in verse 18. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives. Jesus did not come of his own initiative, but he was sent by the Father to bring God's salvation to the world. But all they remembered Jesus was as a boy. They remembered him growing up. They had a hard time reconciling their memories of Jesus as a boy and this great teacher who sat in front of them now who was just about 30 years old. They had trouble seeing him as the one who was sent by God to teach the Word of God to them. Many of them probably been attending the synagogue even before Jesus was born. And now he wants to come and teach them? And they wondered how he could have learned so much and yet be so young. They wondered how the son of a carpenter could have been so strong and wise in the word. And some of them must have challenged him. Some of them must have started muttering. The talk spread through the congregation as Jesus was teaching. Maybe some of them thought about getting up and leaving the synagogue. At first they thought Jesus was here to usher in the kingdom. Maybe even some of them liked the idea and were proud of a local boy who's going to be the Messiah. But then they begin to wonder if he truly was the promised Messiah or not. And Jesus, knowing what they're thinking and what they're muttering and what the talk is around the synagogue, tells them in verses 23 through 27 that prophets are never popular in their own country, especially not in their own hometown. And their offense soon turned to rage and rejection. In verse 23, Jesus responds to the, the muttering and their challenging words. And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Apparently, some of them wanted proof that Jesus was the prophet of God, that he was the Messiah, and not just the son of Joseph, as they remembered. They wanted to see some signs. They wanted to see him some miracles that he performed elsewhere, particularly in Capernaum. Capernaum is where we know that Peter or Jesus had healed Peter's mother-in-law, and there was other miracles that he did in Capernaum. And they say, so, you're really this prophet and teacher that we've been hearing about? All right. Prove it to us. Show us. Give us a sign. Give us a miracle. And that's what the proverb that Jesus quoted is meant to convey. Physician, heal yourself is like saying, never go to a sick doctor. Never trust a skinny cook. Never go to a mechanic whose car has been sitting in his driveway, broke down for weeks. <laughs> They are saying, prove to us that you are a prophet. Later in Luke chapter 11, Jesus will say that it's a wicked generation that seeks for a sign. It's a wicked generation that looks for proof. It's a wicked generation that looks and seeks for miracles. And of course, Jesus already settled this false argument in the wilderness when Satan unsuccessfully failed three times to get Jesus to prove that he was the son of God. So instead of taking the bait and resisting and going or calling to the temptation here to do a miracle, Jesus offends them even more. Verse 24. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth that there were many widows in Israel in the last days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Even though it came right out of their own scriptures, they were offended when Jesus brought up the stories from Elijah and Elisha's ministries and applied it to them. The point of both stories was the same. At the time of Elijah and Elisha, Israel was at a low point of idolatry, moral corruption. God told Elijah to pray that it would not rain so a famine came over the land. That meant Elijah himself needed food. God could have picked any one of the widow's homes in the land of Israel as the place to send Elijah, where he could be fed, miraculously, by the way, and be fed by this widow. But instead, God sent him to a widow in Sidon, a Gentile woman. And through her, God provided both for her and for the prophet and for her son, whom Elijah had healed. And similarly, in Elisha's time, there were many lepers in the land of Israel whom God could have cleansed, but instead, God chose to heal a pagan man, Naaman the Syrian, a general in the army of Israel's enemy. Here were two prophets of Israel, Elijah and Elisha, and Jesus says, Look, these two prophet, there were two prophets, and they came with the word of God, but they did not perform any miracles or signs among the Israelites. Why not? Because your hearts were too hard. You were hardened in sin and unbelief. The only two people these two prophets did go to were Gentiles. Now, in the eyes of the average Jew, Gentiles were bad enough. They hated them. They detested them. But the lowest of the low, the bottom of the barrel, as they saw it, were Gentile widows And Gentile lepers. Yet these two prophets of God, Elijah and Elisha, went to them rather than to all the sick and the needy people of Israel. Jesus is not telling them he can't do miracles in Nazareth. Jesus is not telling them he won't do miracles there. What he is doing is going right to the root of the issue. He sees through their silly request for healings and miracles and gets right to their heart condition, their hardness of their heart, and their hate for another people, for the Gentile people. And he tells them unless they deal with their heart issues, unless they deal with their hate and their pride and their hardness of heart, unless they repent of their hate, They will miss out on the blessings that Jesus brought with him. And he will return, or he will return, then he will return to the Gentiles just as Elijah and Elisha turned to the Gentiles. You see, the people at the synagogue, these religious people, they did not want to be associated with the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed, nor did they want to be associated with Gentiles. In the prologue to his gospel, John records of Jesus, he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. This points to the sad truth that among the hardest people to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ are those who are already religious. It's a sad truth as to why religious people reject Jesus. Religious people have it all worked out. They've got their doctrine all worked out. They've got how religion is supposed to work. They, they've got God all figured out, especially those people who knock on your door and come bearing another gospel. They, they've got it all figured out. Have you ever noticed those people claim to have the answers to everything? Watch out for people who have the answers to everything because nobody has the answers to everything except God and our Savior Jesus Christ. And, but these people have it all, got it all figured out and they've got it all worked out. But they do not know about God's righteousness. They have established a righteousness in a system of their own, which they think is going to bring them to God or make them close to God. But it's a system of righteousness of their own, self-righteousness, which will not save. And this is the mournful picture of human nature. Sometimes those who have the most advantages in the dozen translations of the Bibles at their disposal are, are sometimes the hardest people to reach with the gospel and the last to get it. It's not a healthy thing that Christmas is so popular in America and that the stories are so well known as to be taken for granted. Often the very people who live nearest to the means of grace are those who reject them or neglect them the most. Familiarity with sacred things has an awful tendency to make men despise the things of God. There are many who, from residence and convenience, ought to be first and foremost in the worship of God, and yet sometimes they're the last. But the bottom line is that religious people reject Jesus Christ because they do not want to admit their sinful, desperate condition. The folks in Jesus' audience like to think of themselves as basically good religious people. In the synagogue, three times a week, tithe 10% of everything that they get. They follow all the laws and rules of God as they see it. And they they try to to be good people, at least on the outside. After all, they're, they're Jews. They're not pagan Gentile sinners. And did the fact that they were in the synagogue that day show that they were good people? After all, they were there and they were there three times a week, a lot of them. And And along comes this young upstart who implies that God's message is for the poor. It's for the captive. It's for the blind. It's for the downtrodden. It's for all the people they don't like. They had more self-respect and self-righteousness to see themselves like that. And then Jesus goes even farther and implies that he's going to take God's blessing to the Gentiles. Of all the nerve! After all, we did for him when he was just a boy growing up here in Nazareth. And Of course, the irony of all this is that even though they saw themselves as basically good religious folks, they got so angry at Jesus' convicting message that they left their worship service in a rage with the intent of killing him. This is what good religious folks do? Well, apparently it is what they do. Verse 28 of Luke chapter 4. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of their city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff, to throw him down the cliff. Now, Jesus let them lead him as far as the brow of the hill to reveal the murderous intent their hearts. I mean, he could have just got up and left the synagogue and that would have been it. But he lets them take him out, this mob, this riot, take him out to the brow of the hill because there was no doubt what the intent of their hearts were. There was no doubt about their hatred for Jesus. And then whether miraculously or simply by the power of his commanding person, he walked away from them. Verse 30, but passing through their midst, He went his way. Through all their feelings of rage and all their actions, they should have seen that they were not basically good people at heart at all. Their actions and their words betrayed their evil hearts. They were as good as long as no one confronted their true heart condition. But as soon as Jesus exposed them for what they really were, they rose up to destroy him. So what is the heart condition of every person, religious or pagan, according to God's word? What is our heart condition as human beings who are born into this world? This is our heart condition. We are poor, spiritually destitute, bankrupt before God. We cannot buy our way into heaven because we have nothing to offer God. We can only receive from him. And we are captives, spiritually enslaved to sin. And we're under the domain of the kingdom of darkness, unable to free ourselves from the wicked tyrant who rules this evil world, unable to extricate ourselves from the sin that holds us in his power. Furthermore, we are blind, spiritually unable to see the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ unless he opens our eyes. And just as a blind person has no power or ability in himself to open his eyes, so the spiritually blind sinner cannot do anything in himself to remedy his condition unless God sovereignly and powerfully opens the eyes of his heart. And finally, we are are downtrodden. The word means shattered or broken into pieces. Or as we might say today, we're all busted up. We're all busted up spiritually. And the main thing that keeps religious people from accepting Jesus Christ is the pride that hinders them from seeing their true condition in God's sight and calling out to Him for salvation. The church in Laodicea in the book of Revelation was there. According to Jesus, their assessment of themselves was, I am rich and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. How do you like to put that on as a placard outside your church? We are rich. We have become wealthy. And we have need of, of nothing. But God's assessment was, you are wretched and miserable, poor and blind and naked. But the good news is that when God opens your eyes to see the condition... Be, your true condition before Him, that is the first step toward receiving the good news. If you know you are destitute and someone offers you a million dollars as a free gift, that's good news. If you know you are spiritually poor and God offers freely to forgive all your sins through Jesus Christ, that's the greatest news in the world. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank You that You sent Your Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to die on the cross for us, miserable, poor sinners. That Jesus paid the penalty for every rotten, every wicked, every evil thing that we did, Father. That all we need to do is recognize our spiritual condition before You, Father and receive by faith Jesus Christ and trust in him for our salvation and the forgiveness of our sins and father i pray that you would also soften our hearts as a way of life make us sensitive and soften and receptive of the things of god lord that we might walk in In a way, Lord, that uh, we walk with our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ in all things. Loving him, cherishing him, adoring him, thanking him for reaching down into this world and saving us. And We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.